Amen. 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 It's interesting. My parents are, I I love my parents. My parents grew up (laughs) in a way different culture than I grew up in. They're about 50 years older than me. So they had me real old. Uh, Everybody always thought my parents were my grandparents when I was growing up. And, um, you know, they grew up in that generation that when parents were talking, I don't care if you got to go to the bathroom. I I don't care if there's a fire in the house. You could not talk until the adults stopped talking. There was no excuse me or none of that. It was it was it was just it was interesting. Some of it was a little, I think, barbaric. Um, But, you know, it was like, dang, I can't even, you know. But I grew up in, in a generation where, I mean, I grew up with, around a generation where they were not real tolerant of children in the midst of adults. As a matter of fact, when it was Thanksgiving, it was the adult table and the children's table. You know, um, when they, when they, when they um, smoke, uh, uh, sipping on Remy and slitch malt liquor and smoking cigarettes, among other things, um, you were um, somewhere else in the house. And everybody else stayed out of the adult room. It was like this murky room that reeked of sweat, beer, and smoke. Like, it was just a crazy type environment that I grew up in. But my, my, my parents, it's a lot of things that they didn't tolerate. But one of their biggest things that they did not tolerate is me calling them by their first name. Like, it's funny. I used to get around kids, other kids, you know, and it, they'd be like, um, what's up, D? I was like, who are they talking to? And they were talking to their mama. I was like, D, huh? Hmm. I, I tried it one time. I'm with my mama. I said, hey, Flo, what? <laughs> my lips were numb for three days, just lip busted, cracked up, bleeding, just as a reminder that you don't call me by my first name. They, they, took, their, they took their name seriously because they didn't want what you call them to deteriorate how you viewed them. And I believe that the church, we've been a laughing stock of the world. The culture, whether it's TV, whether it's some play turned into a movie, um, <laughs> whether it's a quote-unquote Christian show or it's like somebody that's wilding out in the movie We hate when they say that they're a Christian because they further push the stereotypes of us not being called by our name. You know, church has become a slang term for not being godly. Church has become a slang term for acting like a certain culture of people that don't accept anyone else as they are. Yet Jesus does. The the church has, the the, the word church has become almost a curse word in our culture. If you say I'm a Christian, that carries no weight anymore. If you say you're a pastor, that doesn't carry any weight no more. Um, I, I don't like people calling me reverend, but if you say I'm a reverend, it doesn't carry any weight anymore. And I believe that we live in a culture and we live in a society where the potency of what Jesus died to bring about has been made devoid through our practices of its general and 
in-depth worth. And so Peter, in this passage, doesn't want God's people to get it twisted. Because we've got it twisted in America. We've got it twisted who we are. If you ask any Christian across the nation from different um, local assemblies, you'll get different words about or different definitions of what the church is. Or we have slang words like church. In other words, it's been taken and, and, and everybody that is in Christ have even got it twisted. And so Peter in this passage calls us in a powerful way to not get it twisted. He doesn't want something to get twisted because he's talking to a group of people that are going through varying levels of suffering. And he doesn't want the challenges that they're going through to cause them to get who Jesus is twisted and who they are twisted. And so he bridges this, this, this section that we're going to get through. Hope we get through all the verses today. I'm only going to do about three or four verses today. And, and, and I've been just meditating on this passage and just blown away by the richness of the value of our identity in Christ. So I just want to talk about in these verses today, don't get it twisted. Because I think many times we as believers get it twisted. We get a lot of things twisted. We get who Jesus is twisted and we get who we are twisted. Peter chooses in this section of the book to basically unfold and unearth principles about the identity of the church that most um, allude to in the New Testament, but really isn't fleshed out quite as elaborately and beautifully as your man Peter does. And so he wants to remind the people in Asia Minor that they are not in a situation that changes who they are, and nor does it change who Jesus is. Check this out. Verse four. That's where we left off. It says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands uh, in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame or disappointed. So the, uh, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do so. Powerful, powerful verses, powerful, powerful words. And I want to spend a time with us together walking through this because I think I think that we can actually spend a few weeks on this, but. I think it's very important for us to really understand who we are because it's, 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 it's um, a massive amount of application that we can extract from this. Um, it, it, there, were, there were actually correlations between the Old Testament that I hadn't even seen before as I was studying this passage. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's rich, but it's not just rich for just us getting puffed up intellectually and theologically, but it has, it, it has infinite practical applications. 
And so what you see is, is, is Peter is talking to these people because they're going through many types of chaos in their life. And so one of the things that Peter doesn't want them to do is that he didn't want them to allow the unclarity of the situation that God has allowed them to be in to stop them from seeing clearly. In other words, in the Christian life, we're called to have consistent 2020 vision. No matter how low in a valley you go, no matter how high on the mountaintop you go, you should always have 2020 vision. You're supposed to have 2020 vision of who Jesus is, and you got to continue to have 2020 vision of who you are, who you are as a believer. Because if you fall into an identity crisis and you don't know who you are and whose you are and what's your purpose, then abuse is inevitable. Abuse is inevitable. So, so Peter dives in and he begins unpacking. You know, Paul talks about us being a body and ligaments and joints, and he uses all of these different illustrations of the church. But I, 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 I'm, I'm not saying Peter's is better, but I think it, it, it gives us an even more broad scope than what our brother Paul was conveying to us as he talked about it. I got one point today with two subpoints. Is that all right? One point with two subpoints. The point, my, my, just the point we're going to make today, is natural chaos must drive God's people to divine clarity. Natural chaos must drive God's people to divine clarity. As we've beat the horse of the fact that there will consistently be struggles with you as a believer. No matter what phase of life you're in, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a teenager, whether you're uh, past menopause, going through menopause, pre-menopause, five children, two children, one, ch one child, no children. That there's, there's something that is a promise for every believer that you're going to go through struggles. Chaos is normal. Things being hectic is normal, even if you didn't do it yourself. Some of it, if we be honest is ushered in by us, but chaos is extremely normal. And so Peter, after he talks about holiness, that idea that we, we grabbed on a few weeks ago on holiness is really going to be practically fleshed out for the rest of the book. He, he's talk, he talked about the fact that we were, of course, common and taken from commonality to consecration. Now he's going to look, he's going to talk to us about how do we practically, how are we practically consecrated? And he does a beautiful job at it in talking about this idea of the identity of the Christian. But he starts with Jesus. He always starts with Jesus. That brings me to my first subpoint. You, if, if you're going to have a natural chaos, must drive God's people to divine clarity. And the first way it's done is clarity of Christ's identity. Clarity of Christ's identity. Look at how Christ-centered Peter is. He says, as you come to him, he's talking about Jesus. And it's interesting, this idea of coming is talking to approach or seek association with someone. It's not just a normal idea of just coming to him, but it's coming to him with the idea of associating with the one you're coming to. See, that sounds real simple, but the more you get to know Jesus and you know what his situation was while he was on earth, and what his situation actually is now at the right hand of the father, 
you and I get as believers comprehensive, un, uh, in other words, unlimited association with Jesus. But the issue is, do you want to fully associate yourself with Jesus Christ? Because when you associate yourself with Jesus Christ, everything that Jesus Christ gets that God gives to people you get, everything that God allowed to happen to Jesus, well, guess what? Happen to you. In other words, this association isn't a weirdness. In other words, I thought that they promised me that things would be different because I came to Jesus. But what's beautiful here is he says, as you come to him, and he says, as a living stone. Living, uh, living means that which possesses or brings life from God. And so what, what this focuses on at, in, in this aspect as him as a living stone is his resurrection. Is his resurrection, but everything that came before the resurrection leading to him not just being a stone. And we're going to break down this stone analogy during our time. But him being a living stone, that, that means he possesses life. Not only does he possess life, but he also gives life. This is very important for the believer to understand. So Jesus possesses life and he gives life. But look at what it says right after that. Rejected by men. It talks about his resurrection and it talks about his suffering. This idea of rejection is interesting to declare something useless. Do you know people declare Jesus useless? Do you know that when Jesus was on planet Earth and he proclaimed who he was to people, they didn't see what he proclaimed at, claimed as anything that was user friendly for them, but it was actually unadulteratedly opposite of what they would have wanted. That's why his first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, abandon what you think about the kingdom and embrace my understanding of the kingdom. And, and every step of the Christian's life is a transformative process. That means that every one of us that comes to Jesus with preconceived notions must abandon any of our preconceived notions and any of our notions must be submitted to him or we are a rejecter of Jesus. And so he says, this was a living stone, a stone that possesses life, but also gives life. Yet some, if something possesses life and is able to give life, why in the world would they reject it? Well, the reason why they rejected is because they had expectations of God that God was not going to provide. And so as these believers are going through struggles, as they're going through challenges, he wants them to make sure that and he wants to remind them of how normal things are for them in relation to the fact that they've come to Jesus and they haven't rejected Jesus. See, for those who have rejected Jesus, your life is different. That doesn't mean your life is easier. It just means your life is different. And so for the believer, there are identifiers based on being identified with Christ and having an identity in Christ that causes certain things to come to fruition in relation to us as believers. So Peter reminds him, he said, I don't want you all to forget why you're going through that our Lord was rejected. He said, if you have experienced rejection by anybody, it's normal. Have you ever been rejected? He said, that's normal. But listen, not just rejected in general. He's talking about rejected because of Jesus. He's not just, he didn't like my makeup. They ain't, they ain't talking about that. She ain't like the way I was. Nah, that ain't, 
What he's, he's not just talking about being rejected just because of anything in particular that's unique to you. He's talking about being rejected because of the uniqueness of who Jesus Christ is. Now, let me ask you the question again. Have you ever been rejected because of Christ? I'm not just talking about somebody don't like you no more. I don't love you no more. And you broke down crying. Not that type of rejection. But because of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. To reject as a result also means to be people who have examined or testing of one's qualifications for something that they want. And so when we look at this rejection, these people that saw Jesus while Jesus was on planet Earth, Jesus presented himself to them and they didn't like the qualifications of what it meant to be in a relationship with him. Ask Peter. And it's interesting that Peter's writing this and I can see all types of things. Peter, Jesus said, I must suffer many things under the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And must be delivered and must be crucified. And Peter was like, nah, man, I, I'm not feeling that, Jesus. Like, I'm not feeling like what you're spitting right now. Um, like, let me let me school you a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, I, I mean, I, I've been trekking with you up far. I done went through eating your body and your flesh, heard, dr- drinking your blood. I done heard all that. Now you're tripping. Now you're going to tell me like that you're going to die. Like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm not feeling that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter was later prophesied that he was going to go through a bunch of suffering. He ended up after this getting crucified upside down. So it's beautiful to see that even the writer of this went through a quasi-rejection of Jesus Christ after he even became into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because he was rejecting the qualifications of what it meant to walk with him. And so while suffering is going on, he says, I don't want you to get it twisted, people of God. He says, I want you to be reminded of rejection. I want you to be reminded, not, not because you're being an oaf. I'm not talking about the gospel like uh, uh, um, uh, being an offense for the wrong reasons, the gospel must be an offense for the right reasons. Not because you're, so, you're at work and you're supposed to be working. And your boss say, what you doing? Oh, you know, I'm just getting in the word, just worshiping. <laughs> I, I've been just blessing them. That's not a good reason for rejection. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. <laughs> in other words, but when God opens up the opportunity for the gospel and, and, the, and, and you present the gospel or you reflect a life that is gospel centered and someone rejects it, that's a good reason for rejection. Good reason for rejection. Whether you're an artist, some of you as artists have been rejected because you choose to do artistry a certain way. You choose for your artistry to bear a certain imprint. And and there's good rejection and there's bad rejection. And so we want the gospel to offend for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. But then he says, but he says, this is how cats view Jesus, rejected. But then he turns and he says, but chosen, but in the sight of God, he's elect us, elect and precious. In other words, 
the way God views things and the way man views things is usually going to be diametrically opposed. So what he says is, I don't want you to get it twisted. I don't want you to begin in your trial to make you look at Jesus like everyone else looks at him because you're asking, why does good, bad things happen to good people? Because you're assuming that you're good. That's why you're asking that question. Raggedy cell. All of us. Why do, I mean, I, I've been praying. Or you, you know, it's, it's funny how when people, something happens to somebody, you start presenting your resume to God. Like laying out your word. I've been sharing the gospel. I go to church and I'm on time. I'm the first one to worship. Tears roll down my face before anybody else. I love you. That means you're not identifying with Christ. You're identifying with yourself. Because if you present a resume of your goodness to God, you've just presented some old filthy trifling rags to him. So you got to so that means you got to have clarity of him because it impacts how you see you. That means you have to recognize that Christ is precious. The reason why these songs are so elaborate that we have that we describe them is because we want you to be reminded of who he is, despite your situation not seeming to reflect who he is. You, that, that, that's why we worship. That's why we continue to have Christ-centered songs to point you to him so that you can never get it twisted. The reason why we sing vamps so long is to get it in your head over and over and over again. The preciousness and the worthiness of the living stone. And so you got to see him as chosen. In other words, the father elected Jesus. You thought you was the only one elect, but the father elected Jesus to be a bringer of salvation. Oh, I know y'all don't like that because it ain't about you yet. But 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 God in eternity past chose Christ and, and it, it, it even reflects it in Revelation. Uh, my man John was like, oh, man, there's a there's a scroll who's worthy to pop open the scroll. John John started wigging out. And, and, and the angel looked at him, stop, man, will you stop tripping? Chill out. Because there is one here who is able to open the scroll. And it says, and one with the likeness of a lamb began to split the crowd. And he walked between the crowd. He said, look, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is the only one, and it says the father handed the scroll to the lamb. Chosen, he's elect. Specifically appointed and anointed for the work of being Messiah. Yeshua Messiah. Yes, glorious is Jesus. Precious. So do you see Jesus as precious when you're, when you're having challenges? Do you stare into his likeness when you're going through or do you stare into you going through? I guarantee, I guarantee if you begin to stare at his preciousness and get on the same page as the father and make his worthiness known not to others first, but to yourself. Is he known to you while you're going through, sis? Is he known to you, bruh, while you're going through, or is he forgotten? Have you gotten it twisted 
Is he, is he no longer elect in your mind? He was specifically anointed to walk with you. Specifically, that's his calling. And he's precious. But, but then what I want to do is I don't want I to I, I jump around us. I want to stay at Jesus for this moment. And I want to go down to verse 6. We'll come back to verse 5. I know we do verse by verse, but I want to get to us last. It says, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious. <laughs> and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I, I want to focus just on cornerstone. There's so much in that I can focus on. I just want to zoom in on cornerstone because it's beautiful imagery. You know, cornerstone, it's, it's interesting. After the foundation of a building would be laid, they would put the cornerstone on top of the foundation so that every other stone that is built based on that stone will be lined up correctly and that will be the standard for the other stones. See, 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 the Bible says in Ephesians 2.20, it says built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. Now, most of you say, well, why in the world would the apostles and prophets be the foundation and not Jesus? Well, what were they preaching? See, what were the prophets pointing to? What were the apostles pointing to? What does John say in 1 John chapter 1? That which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've touched with our hands, we proclaim to you. <laughs> so the foundation is Jesus and the cornerstone itself is Jesus. And the cornerstone is uniquely positioned. Sometimes the cornerstone, the first stone that was laid based on the rest of the building that was to be laid, sometimes was a unique texture and color so that you know that it's the standard stone. And every stone that's laid has to be fitted properly in based on the standard of the cornerstone. So when we look at Jesus... He's our standard. When we talk about Christ-centeredness, this is where we get it from. He is our standard, not just Christus exemplar, but he's our penal substitution, in our place type stuff. But he's also our example. Christus exemplar means Christ as our example. So whatever he is like, we need to be fitting and fashioning ourselves based on who the Lord Jesus the Christ is. And so you see, that your man Peter made sure that, he's, that, 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 the father, that the father wants to make clear that Jesus is preeminent among his people when they're going through. That he is to be exalted among his people at all times. That no matter where you are, you must remember him first. Because once you remember him, then you can trace where you are. But you got to understand the cornerstone. you got to look at how he's been fitted in, how he's been laid, how he has been set up, and then you'll get a clear understanding of who you are. So he, so he surrounds the text with who Jesus Christ is. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion. We're going to come back to that. Why he says in Zion. He repeats a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him, that is Christ, 
will not be put to shame. That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful to know that even though you're going through a trial, that God won't allow you, if, uh, he will not allow you to be embarrassed. In other words, when you are putting your faith in Christ, in Christ alone, embarrassment is not going to happen. In God's eyes, anyway. Now, it may happen in man's eyes, but not God's eyes. And he said this, he says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the block. That's what that literally means. The word there for cornerstone there means the head of the corner. You know, I could just go allegorically off and talk about Jesus on the corner. But it's not talking about him on the corner as in North Philly corner. You know what I'm saying? Like, you on the, like this means block. Head of the block. It literally does mean head of the block. That's crazy. That's dope. Um, but it's talking about his headship. Even though he's not at the top of the temple, he's at the foundation of the temple. Now, we've gone for having clarity of identity in Christ. Now, let's go into our, our last, our last sub-point is, um, is clarity of community identity. Clarity of community identity. Let's go back. Let's go back to verse five. I want to read that again. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, notice he notice in verse four, he says, Jesus is a living stone, but now over in verse 5, it says, like living stones. So what we see here is that every person that trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a stone. Is a stone. And I'm going to explain all of that in a second when we talk about the history of temples and how it relates to us here. And he says, being built up. Interesting, that's in the present passive. In other words, we don't do it. Passive means we're not doing it. It's being done to us, and it's, a conti it's continuously present. In other words, it's happening in the present, not just in the past or the future, but it's happening right now. So he says we're being built up. Beautiful. So the picture is this. The picture of the, is this. It, it, this word to build is the word that usually is translated meaning to edify. Okay? So, so, so to be built up has to do, it, it's, it's a dual entendre here, double meaning. In other words, it means to be justified and to be sanctified. Now, what does it look like practically? Thank you. Glad you asked. What he's saying is, is being built up is, when you go back to verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it talks about the role of the Godhead in salvation. The Father chooses, the Son saves, and the Holy Spirit goes and applies that salvation. With the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, most people think that Jesus is going to heaven to make you a mansion. I'm going to be living fat. No, that's not what he's talking about. When he went to prepare a place for you, what happened when he went up? The Holy Spirit came down, right? So now the Spirit is the agent by which Jesus is doing his ministry practically what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit 
uh, uh, he, uh, he inspired the apostles and prophets with the word of God, which is the salvation, which is salvation. Christ was placed there because Jesus uh, was laid by the Father. Then, as people trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes you and adds your brick to the big eternal building, which is an eternal uh, temple, which I want to explain. And so we get justified, but not not only are we set aside to become a part of God's eternal temple, we are being built up so that we can properly reflect the cornerstone. So even though you're added to the building, you're not fully reflecting the cornerstone. So you are being presently built up by an agent outside of yourself. And this is what I would call a divine passive. In other words, when the person who's actually doing the act of the building up is not as a pronoun or a specific word, you assume that it's God. And so God is building us up, actively involved in our lives to shape us into the image of the cornerstone presently. Because God don't want no raggedy temple. You know, God, God is not like a, like a, like a raggedy contractor. He not piecemealing stuff together. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I don't know. Let's, I don't, I mean, just, I mean, it's cool. There's a stone there, right? Let's just leave it like, no, God is a very, he's a perfectionist. And he wants every stone to be worked on and chiseled into the image of the cornerstone. So as he's building us up, even what you're going through is God's act of making you look like the cornerstone. You're, you're, you're a part of the building, but the issue is you're not fully who you're going to be to reflect the cornerstone as a part of the building. And so he's building us up. Then, then he, say, he says being built up as a spiritual house. Excellent. Love this. When he talks about spiritual house, when you go to the Old Testament, when you go to places like Haggai 2.9, and it talks about um, the, 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 uh, the, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory. Notice it's talking about house. Let's do a quick hist- historical anthology of God's houses. Some believe that it, Eden in Genesis chapter 2 was actually the first temple. That Adam and Eve's role in going out and, and being fruitful and multiplying and fill the earth and subduing it Eden was the main temple presence of God, and they were supposed to go out, cultivate the earth so that it reflected Eden. And as they had children, as they cultivated the land of the earth, the glory of God would spread and Eden would be extended. Uh, that may be a stretch, uh, but, I, but I do see some type of temple peace um, in, 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 in Genesis 2. I don't know if that's clearly it, but, but then look at, look at the next one. Then it goes from Eden because they got kicked out. To the, to the altar in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, you see Abraham building an altar. When he's building an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord, it was at that time the way in which people connected with God and which people identified with him so that the people around them would know that they served God and not the gods that they served. So we see it went from Eden to altar. Then it went from altar to tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 26, you see the building of the tabernacle. Right before that, you see, stay with me, y'all. You see right before that, the Ark of the Covenant being developed. Now, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't a tabernacle or a temple 
um, it was to be placed inside of the tabernacle. And so, and so they were to make an outer court, an inner court, and a holiest of holies. Hebrews will tell you that that's a reflection of heaven. So in heaven, there's an outer court, there's an inner court, and there is a holiest of holies. Then you see the first temple being built. David wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, your son would, but he made preparations. And so your man Solomon built an elaborate temple in 1 Chronicles 22 and 2nd, but it, but it came to fruition in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. So you see this physical temple that it turned from tabernacle to temple, outer court, inner court, and holies of holies, outer court. In a court, holies of holies. Then it goes to the second temple. Because what happened is, is when, is when Israel got out of God's will, God had Nebuchadnezzar and his crew come in and smash up the, the temple that they were in. And, and smash up and took all of the treasuries up, up to Babylon. Then after that, based on Ezra chapter 3 through 6 and Habakkuk, I mean, uh, uh, Haggai chapter 2, you see that there's a second temple. This temple was much smaller, but this temple was to have more glory um, impacting it, even though um, it was a smaller temple. And then you see that the temple went through some issues after that. And then in the New Testament, in Luke 2, you see Herod's temple. You see that temple being a renovated version of the second temple. But then you see Jesus Christ come on the scene. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that was a that was a sneak preview of coming attractions, because what God was stay with me, y'all, all of this is rounding out. He wanted the, his people to no longer look to pray to a place, but pray to a person. And so he was removing handmade sacred spaces and using what he created with his own hands as mobile tabernacles to his presence. And so Jesus Christ, listen, y'all, becomes the prototype temple. But it expands because Jesus by himself isn't the temple of God. He's just one of the bricks or, or one of the stones in the temple of God. And so it says he dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? But then we come here and we see now that all of those, all of those um, ways in which the temple was perceived in the Old Testament has been fulfilled through Christ in his church. And so when he says a, a, a spiritual house, he's talking about a house that can't be made with human hands. Uh, um, but, but then he says house, and I like this. I like this. Because when the Bible talks about a house, it always talks about a head of a household that is the father or the leader or the primary progenitor of that particular household. Stay with me, fam. You got the house of Abraham. You got the house of Jacob. You got the house of David. And everybody that was born in their bloodline get to experience in some way the blessings that was pronounced on the head of that household. It's like I used to watch. I used to be a big Highlander fan. You know, your boy McLeod would get somewhere and he'd say, who are you? I am, I am Duncan McLeod. I am the, I am the house of McLeod. And, so he, and, and they said that with a lot of pride. This is the house I'm from. Well, what he's saying here is now the, the, the house of Abraham, the house of Isaac, the house of Jacob, the house of David 
has been now turned into the house of Jesus. And so now we are a part of his house. So now we, when we talk about the household of faith, that means whatever God pronounces on Jesus, he pronounces on us or allows us to experience the benefits of what was pronounced on that person. And so he said, it is a spiritual house. Then he says, a holy priesthood. Oh, I'm loving it. Because now he's taking it to look at what does it actually look like to be a a, a spiritual household or a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Well, in the Old Testament, you know, the priesthood was, they they brought the people before God. And you see over in in Hebrews chapter 4, beautifully laid out. You see over there, you see the fact that Jesus is not a Levitical priest. Jesus is not an Aaronic priest. And he's not a high priest according to the old order. But the Bible says that he's a priest of a brand spanking new priesthood called the order of Melchizedek. This, 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 this name Melchizedek of course, has a whole lot of nutrients in it that we don't have time to unpack. But it means kingly priests. Yeah, and so Jesus Christ is after a brand new order that merges his, that makes room for his anointing. Now, now that we can talk about anointing in a good context. And the anointed one and his anointing, right? So, as a, as, as, as after this order, it reflects a whole lot of different things that were physical to the Old Testament priesthood, but now becomes spiritually applied. Priests in the Old Testament, um, their, their activities um, in, in, involved uh, burning of incense, um, uh, the ceremonial, dealing with the ceremonial vessels and sacrifices. They were to be teachers in passing on the sacred traditions of the nation. From generation to generation, that's called discipleship. The high priest was the spiritual head of Israel, and he had special functions. He entered the holies of holies once a year on Yom Kippur. Stay with me, because we're going to see how this flesh out. The Levites assisted the priest and served the congregation in the temple. They sang. They kept the temple courts clean. They helped prepare uh, a certain sacrifices and offerings, and they also had a teaching function. So now in Christ, let's point those to how they biblically flesh out in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now we know that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Now, what's beautiful with, with our high priest is that he wasn't a high priest that hung in some physical temple all the time and waited till we brought our sacrifices there. But he actually took on a human nature, an additional nature, came to planet Earth and lived among incarnationally the people he was going to be sacrificed for. That's why Hebrews chapter two says we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with our infirmities, but he has been tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. And so when we look at Christ, Christ wasn't some priest with some fat gear on waiting for me to bring a sheep up to the crib for him to slay. No, he says, matter of fact, I'm going to take off my eternal priestly garments. I'm going to put on your gear and then I'm going to be slain. And matter of fact, I'm going to sprinkle my blood from the outer court to the inner court. 
And all the way into the holies of holies, I'm going to have the, 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 the veil ripped from top to bottom so you can come in anytime you want to. And guess what? These are your priestly duties. These are, your priestly role is to be before the Father regularly. In the Old Testament, people had to sing all the time. People had to pray all the time. They had to light incense, make sure that the oil. But it's, and so now we see that physical manifestation of the priesthood now taken to a spiritual reality. So the nature of the priesthood. The priesthood has direct access to God. That means you don't have to go to a booth. Say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. And I, I don't make fun of that because we may have Catholic friends in here. But if, but, but, but if anyone in this house believes that you have to come to a pastor or a priest, Jesus tore the curtain so you can have direct access, not on your own. I ain't talking about the person that say, when you try to share the gospel with him, I got my own relationship with God. I pray. No, we ain't talking about that. You ain't got your own relationship with God. None of us have our own relationship with God. We have our own relationship with Jesus Christ, who has a relationship with God, and we get the blessings of his relationship with God. Therefore, we have a relationship with God that is his own that he's allowed us to share in. It's just like when somebody, you know, you bring somebody with you and they wasn't invited. And the person that invited you look at them like, who is this? And then you say, no, nah, he's good. Then everything's cool. That's what Jesus does. He said, let him in, daddy. Everything's cool. Part of the priesthood. Pop, pop pounds you up and loves on you. But all of this is he's telling them while they're going through difficulty. That your priestly role is still going on. That even though you're going through and you feel like heaven has been closed. Because Jesus Christ has made heaven available to you. Not just when you die. But now. Now. You don't have to wait for anybody. I know we go through times we need others to pray for us. But not only that, we're supposed to, we have direct access to God. We offer what's called spiritual sacrifice. I'm explaining that. We declare the gospel and we are a worshiping local community. Now, what do spiritual sacrifices look like in relation to these spiritual sacrifices? Because it says, and we offer spiritual sacrifices. I did a quick study. I did a study on the New Testament. I looked up the word sacrifice everywhere it was. And I connected it to this passage. I was blown away by what sacrifices we are able to give to God as his priesthood. Y'all ready? These are the practical ways you're a priest. Now, let's look at the old temple order. We keep order in the temple based on Malachi chapter 1, but then 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 40 says, in the local community, let everything be done what? In decency and in order. So order isn't over. Orderly worship isn't over. It continues, but it's spiritually done. Learning and teaching. In Ezra 7.10, it says, And Ezra set his heart to study the law and to practice the law and then to teach it to Israel. Notice, he started with himself as, the, as a priest. 
and what he did as a priest was fleshed out in the lives of others. Many of us get information real quick that we want to share with everybody else that hasn't been deposited in us. So now we have now, but now it's not just one cat teaching. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 13 says, all of us on some level teach. So we're a community of teachers, disciple makers. So you have to set your heart to know the scriptures. Set your heart to apply the scriptures. And then set your heart. Notice it's set your heart. And then to teach others. Not only that, sacrifice began with Jesus. Verses of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 talks about Christ as the sacrifice that we imitate. <laughs> but then it says, not only do we look at Christ's sacrifice as the ultimate sacrifice, but we reflect this sacrifice by giving our bodies as a living sacrifice. So every priest, male and female, is now supposed to give themselves as a sacrifice in the holies of holies regularly. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So each and every one of us are supposed to live as priests after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, we're called a sacrifice. What if you're going through and you feel like you have nothing to give? Guess what you're called to do still? Sacrifice. I don't want you to forget that this is in the context of trials, that he's telling them this. Not only that, in, 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 in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, it's interesting. 4.18, it says, a lot of people stop earlier. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But they don't keep going. Verse 18 it says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Know what he says? You used to give, you used to, give to church planning and pioneering missions. Y'all don't know Philippians was a support letter. He was asking them for money. That's why he wrote the whole book. So he could ask for money in chapter 4. He told them in chapter 1. Now, when he said, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ, most of you think that about that as your sanctification. That's not what he's talking about. He said that you would continue to give to the kingdom initiatives of global missions. That's what that's about. That you began as a baby Christian giving the missions and that until Jesus comes back or you die, you continue to give. I know we don't like that. But that's one of our ways of sacrificing. Some of you don't give nothing. You're not operating in your priesthood. Then he goes, and not only there, he, he talks about a sacrifice of prayer. In, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, in Revelation 8, 3 through 5, prayer. Not only that, loving other Christians... According to mercy and justice. According to mercy and justice. I didn't even put the thing. I just put 13, 16. I think that's Romans. I can't remember. Sorry. This is the one that hit me. Psalm 51, 17. <laughs> a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifices of a broken 
and contrite heart. If you're going through and you're broken, the Bible says that God loves those type of sacrifices. You're being a priest when your life is an aroma through you, through you allowing yourself to be dismantled of your self-dependence and your pride. If that's where you are, God's nostrils are wide open for your life. But if you're not broken, you're a stench and not operating in your priestly role. Confession, James chapter 5, verse 15 says, confess your sins one to another. And then the end on it, then the end, just some practical ways to worship, y'all, to reflect it. Now the last one is worship. Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him, then let us continually to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Sacrifice of praise. So that means when you're going through struggles and you're among the body of Christ, you can't allow the hellaciousness of your situation to stop you from giving up the fruit of your lips to him. That means you're supposed to remind yourself of who he is. These are the sacrifices. That's, if, you, if you're not a Christian, this is what it looks like to be a believer. He does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it's a wonderful plan that's not the plan that you thought it was. When you go through, you're still called to be who he's called you to be. We are never allowed to take a vacation from the Christian life. Even if you're on physical vacation, you're still called to be on spiritual duty. And so I pray that as you're going through, and I hope you've written these things down. If y'all want me to put it on the web, I'll put it on the web. But I really wanted us to look at these sacrifices so that you can begin to be biblically reminded of your responsibility during your challenges, during your struggles, during your frustration, so that you don't take a break. Spending so much time venting, spending so much time hating life, spending so much time being frustrated that you don't remember who you are. You are after the order of Melchizedek. A priesthood. Priesthood of people who are soaked in the blood of Christ and who have been worthy, made worthy utensils of the new non-corporeal temple that your boy Ezekiel prophesied of in Ezekiel 47. He said the difference with the temple that's going to come is going to be a temple that when it's built up and fully operational, that the glory of God is going to stream through the bricks, through the cornerstones, through the foundation, and it's going to go out of each door of the house. And that passage is not talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about that. Ezekiel's temple is talking about the earth being the new temple. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, God's tabernacle is going to be in the midst of his people. And God's people surrounding him is going to be a t bricks surrounding him, experiencing his presence. But even all of the believers of past, present, and future aren't enough to hold his presence. 
And because we won't be enough to hold his presence, his presence will stream throughout the earth. His presence will stream throughout the universe. And he will not only fill everything around us, but he will fully fill us. And he will rule over us. And we will call him king for the rest of our eternal lives. There will be no more temples. There will be no more sun. Because the glory of God will emanate everything. So if you're going through challenges, you're being built up as a brick that can sustain the presence of God. Allow him to build you up, royal priesthood. No more lay people anymore. Because there's no more, there's nothing sacred when it comes to God's people. Everybody can touch not just a particular group of people. And so I pray that as you go through, that no matter how hard this time is, that you don't get it twisted. No, that was a lot of information to dive into, but I want you to dive back in it this week. I want you to dive back in it, and I want you to spend time meditating on it, thinking about the fact that because you're going through a difficult time, that it's to change who you are, whose you are, and what your purpose is. Father, I know this was weighty today. Lord God, as we meditate on the beautiful significance of being yours, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would grace us to get it and that our lives would systemically reflect what it means to be on duty as your missionary agents as the royal priesthood. May we all take on, may we all take on our responsibility as believers, no matter where we are in life. May we see our cornerstone. May we see him as chosen. May we see him as beautiful. And may we be zealous to look like the one who we were cut and hewed to look like and to be built next to so that you can fill us all and that your rule will be made a reality. In Jesus Christ's name we pray.